Good morning, church. It's great to see all of you here today. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 19 or your bulletin on page 9. If you've been with us, we've been following Jesus as he makes his way to Jerusalem, inciting this revolution of the king. And, and we know, if you've been with us, that Jesus has been saying, announcing for many, many weeks that he is going to this great city. In fact, since chapter 9, when he first announced that he must go to Jerusalem, nine times he has insisted to his disciples before then that he must go to this holy city where God's kingdom will finally clash with the kingdoms of the world. So he's been anticipating this. We've been anticipating this. Finally, this triumphal entry is happening. The, the holy week begins. That's where we are today. So let's look, look at nine, Luke 19 together. Let me, let me pray as we go to God's word. Our Father, we thank you that you indeed have risen up and exalted Jesus as both the lion and the lamb. He is the lion, he is the one with all authority and power, and he is the lamb. He is the one who in great weakness gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. It is beyond our understanding how two, two attributes like that, authority and vulnerability, can be combined in a single person, yet here is our king. And we pray that we would see him today in all of his glory in this strange and wonderful story May we see him, know him, believe in him, follow him, give him all of our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear God's word from Luke 19. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. It is given to each of you in love. After Jesus said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt, put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they shouted. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you and your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. So here we are at the beginning of Holy Week. We're about to rehearse again these events that we rehearse together as Christians year after year. And what I want you to understand, friends, whether you are a Christian or not, that we believe that these events are the most important events, not just in the lives of Christians, but in the events of everyone who lives on this planet. And I know that's an audacious claim to make. 
that these events are not just moving stories that inspire us. Christians actually believe that in the events that happened, literally within this seven-day span of time, 2,000 years ago, God was acting in history to save the world. That in these particular events, God was doing something to transform the course of history forever. And how you personally understand, receive, and embody these events in your own life actually determines the course of your own future and the course of your eternity. And I know that is a dramatic thing to say, but we claim it is true. And it all begins with this triumphal entry, this, this parade of Jesus into Jerusalem. I want you to try to suspend your preconceptions about this story. This, has become, this is one of those stories that's become sort of a cutesy, sentimental child story. And it is, but it's way, way much more than that. So I want you to try to hear it freshly this morning. And here's what I'd like to challenge you to do. Pretend like you're a reporter. Kids, you can do this too. Pretend like you're a reporter for the Jerusalem Times. You know, you're a writer for the Jerusalem blog or whatever, news source. And you are there as a reporter trying to analyze what you see happening so that you can report what's going on. What would you ask? What would you look for? I think you would ask at least these three questions. Who is this man? Who is he? Second, what does he come to do? And then finally, how will he do it? So let's, let's do that together, fellow journalists. Will you join me in this this morning? Please, some of you? Yes, yes, thanks. <laughs> Who is he? What has he come to do? And how will he do it? Okay, so first, let's look at the first question. Who is he? What is actually going on in this crazy parade? Remember, friends, these people are all Jewish, and there's a whole lot of Jewish symbolism going on in this passage that us modern Gentiles just simply cannot understand. So let me try to explain some of the symbolism. First of all, they're laying down coats and cloaks in the road. What's that all about? Well, in the Jewish tradition, that was a sign of honor for a king when you laid cloaks in the road. You can read about that in 2 Kings 9.13. The palm branches, not mentioned here, but in the other three gospels, palm branches were a Jewish national symbol, a symbol of royalty, a symbol of victory and triumph. Verse 38 Hear, hear these words. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a phrase directly taken from Psalm 118, which is a collection of psalms called the kingly Davidic psalms that were sung often at the coronations of kings. And so you see what's going on here. It's not just a little festive parade. They are announcing a king and not just any king, the great king. There once was a great king in Israel. His name was David. He was a pretty good king. Under his rule, uh, Israel prospered and, and, and flourished. But unfortunately, um, pretty much all of his sons and grandsons were, were, were fools. <laughs> and, and they took Israel downhill into famine and sickness and judgment and idolatry and war. Eventually, Israel was taken over by foreign armies. And here they are in the first century living as an oppressed state under Roman occupation. Things are not going well for Israel. And yet, for all these hundreds of years, there has been this whisper of a promise that there will be another king, that one day this true king from the line of David, the Messiah king, the cosmic king, the ultimate king, the global ruler king, he will arise and he will come into Jerusalem and he will redeem Israel from their enemies and he will reestablish God's reign. And the predictions are many. The Old Testament is full of these prophecies. Some of them are very specific, like Zechariah. Zechariah 14 says that true king will come from the Mount of Olives. See that in verse 37? He will come from the Mount of Olives and he will ride into Jerusalem on a colt. 
And so you see everything going on here, the cult, the, the Mount of Olives, the, the coats, the palms, the quoting of Psalm 118, everything is pointing to this, that this guy is the one. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just a wandering teacher. He's not even just a king. He is the king, the cosmic king, the Messiah king, the Davidic king, the great triumphant ruler king. This is the one that Israel has been waiting for and longing for. He's the one. Now you can see the varied responses, right? The disciples are overjoyed. They're singing, they're acclaiming, they're praising, they're psyched, as we would say. The Pharisees are not feeling that way at all. You see in verse 39, they say, make them stop. They know exactly what's happening. They're, see, they were fairly tolerant of Jesus when he was a country bumpkin miracle worker out in the fields, not causing a whole lot of trouble. They were tolerant of Jesus. And up to this point, he has stayed in those rural areas. But now here is Jesus riding into downtown Jerusalem. And I want you all to understand, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He is intentionally fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies. He is making this undeniable, dramatic claim about himself, and the Pharisees can no longer ignore him. They can no longer just hope that this man, this movement of Jesus, just kind of blows over. In the face of this dramatic claim of his Messiah kingship, they have to do something. And they can either crown him as the rightful king, or they can kill him as a revolutionary imposter. But what they can't do is nothing. Jesus does not leave any option anymore. They must crown him or kill him or kill him or crown him. Let me, let me apply this for us. I think we often don't think of Jesus as the king. We don't have kings. Americans, we don't like kings. We get rid of kings. And so, you know, it's kind of hard for us as Americans, especially to understand the, the metaphor of kingship. We like to think of Jesus as savior and son of God. And, but we don't often think of him as king. But what I want you to see, my beloved brothers and sisters, is that one of the most final claims that Jesus makes about himself, and actually the claim that led him to his death and his crucifixion, is that he is the true king. So this is a pretty important claim. And what I want you to see is that he's essentially saying, I am happy to be your savior. I am happy to be your friend. I am happy to be your shepherd. But I must also be your king. And what do you do with a king? You give your allegiance. Response is called for. No one can do nothing when it comes to a king. I remember when I lived in England, I was at a very swanky British garden party. I was eating a cucumber sandwich, trying to hold my pinky up, you know, the way you do that in, in, uh, in, in Britain. And suddenly, trumpets sounded. Turn around, the queen. There's the queen. I remember she was wearing bright yellow. She looked like this glorious canary. And everyone stopped. Everything stopped. We froze. No more talking. No more eating. We all zone in on the queen. Because when royalty shows up, the only thing that you do is give your allegiance to the one who deserves it. And so this is what Jesus is doing here, friends. In this very dramatic public parade, he is calling for that kind of response. And what I want you to see is that you can't not do nothing. That's a double negative, sorry. You can't do nothing. You, ca- you can't dabble with someone like this. You can't just sort of give him bits of your life and give him bits of your time and bits of your money and occasionally show up to church and sort of hope that you get close to God and sort of give him little p- parts of your spiritual life. No, th- that's, that's not what you do with a king. You either give him your allegiance 
or you reject him as an imposter, but you either kill or crown or crown or kill, but there's no indifference, there's no middle way. And Jesus is now forcing that upon them and he's forcing them upon you. See, Jesus, he will not go into a city unless he goes as the ultimate king. And I would also say this, that he will not come into a life unless he comes as the ultimate king. Jesus won't accept living in the suburbs of your life. He won't live in Goochland. He wants downtown. He wants Times Square Central. Jesus wants the centermost part of your life, the ultimate place of authority, that all things in your life are organized and oriented around him. He says that or walk away, no middle way. He's forcing his kingship upon us. What will you do with him? I know, I, I love that so many of you are here week by week, and I know a lot of you are here, just, you just sort of come because you like to be inspired by the music or the preaching or whatever, but I want you to hear is that this is the week that Jesus is forcing a decision upon you about his kingship. What will you do with this man? What will you do with him? This is the best week of all to decide. What will you do with this king? So who is he? If you're, you can write this in your little reporter pad. The true king the true king. Second, okay, so what does this king come to do? So Jesus is the king. Has he come to set up a new Jewish political dynasty? Well, no. Let's look. Verse 38, the people say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. What they are celebrating in a very Jewish way of saying it is the reign of God, the kingdom of God. The word peace is the Greek word irene, translated from the Hebrew shalom. They are celebrating the shalom of God that the king has promised to bring to the earth. The Jews believe that the Messiah king, when he comes, he wouldn't just establish a political kingdom, although they were hoping for that, but they also believe that he would bring peace and shalom and healing and restoration to all of creation, that he would establish the reign of God over all things. I love what Jesus says in verse 40. If the people keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, isn't that funny? Does Jesus really mean the stones will cry out? Well, yeah, he does. Old Testament prophecy spoke about creation rejoicing when the Messiah King comes. Isaiah 55. When the King comes, the mountains and hills will burst into song. Just picture that, kids. The mountains and hills bursting into song. The trees of the field will clap their hands. The trees clapping. When the king comes, Psalm 96, all of the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Y'all know this. You've been singing this all your life. Every Christmas we sing it. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let earth, let saints their songs employ. Help me out, choir. Wild fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains. Repeat the sounding joy. Do you hear that? Rocks. Rocks. Rocks, hills, and Plains. This is not poetry. This is for real that we believe that when the Messiah King establishes his reign upon the earth, everything in creation that is broken and cursed, including the rocks and trees themselves, will finally experience wholeness. Romans 8, all of creation yearns for the sons of God to be revealed when the King comes. The reign of God. I spent a lot of time this week thinking about the donkey. You know, Luke does not give a lot of details in this passage about the disciples. He doesn't mention their names, about the town. He doesn't mention the name of the town. But he's very interested in the donkey. He spends a lot of precious ancient ink talking about the donkey. So if you are a good reporter, you will pay attention to the donkey too. What is up with the donkey? You know, um, 
Do you know what happens when you get on a young, unbroken donkey that has never been ridden? Do you know? I didn't really know either. So I asked Andy Redman, my assistant, to find out. I asked her to call a donkey person. (laughs) Andy called the donkey trainer at Maymont. Did you know there's a donkey trainer at Maymont? And get this, the donkey trainer's name at Maymont is Joseph. <laughs> I, am not, I am not joking you. Joseph, the donkey trainer. So Andy says, so Andy says hey, Joseph, um, what would happen if someone got up on a little donkey, a little young donkey, a donkey colt, that had never been broken, never been touched, never been ridden? What would happen? And, and Joseph said, well... You would eat, the donkey would either buckle its back legs and refuse to move, or it would buck off the person before you could count to two. But there is no way that you could ride a little unbroken donkey, first of all, at all, but certainly not ride it into a crowd, a screaming mass of hundreds of people. But look, look what Jesus does. Look at this. He gets up on this little donkey. The donkey's chill. Jesus rides this donkey into a screaming mass of crowd. I mean, all the kids are screaming and pulling the donkey's tail. They're hitting him with the palms. Everybody's yelling. Donkey's poised. The donkey, it has, the donkey is just experiencing the fulfillment of donkiness. <laughs> he is just walking right down through that crowd. What is going on here? I tell you what's going on here, friends. I love the way D.A. Carson put it. The donkey is calm under the hand of the one who calmed the sea. The king, the true king, has come upon the donkey. The donkey's fears are driven out, and the donkey is made whole. Now, you might be thinking I'm silly for talking about this, but I am being serious, friends. Here is what I'm getting at. If Jesus can make stones sing, if Jesus can make trees clap, if Jesus can make anxious, nervous, baby donkeys calm, then think what he can do for you. Think what he can do when the reign of God comes upon your life. Think about the, think about the, the curses and the suffering that he could heal. Think about the, the sorrows that he, and, the, and the brokenness in you that he could mend. Think about the anxiety and the fears that he could drive out. Think about the, the potential This donkey has reached his donkey potential under the reign of Jesus. The the potential will explode in your life the degree to which you come under the rule of Jesus. That is what is being offered here. Jesus is the king, but he is not coming to to subject you under his, his forceful reign. He is coming to set free creation, and that includes you. He wants to bring his reign into your life, his gracious rule, his gracious reign. He wants you to be the person that God intended you to be. And if God can do that for donkeys, I am telling you he can do that for you. I am telling you he can. So friends, what has the king come to do? Pull out your little notebook. Establish God's reign. And, and, And that reign is the healing of all creation, and that healing can begin with you. As you accept Jesus' kingship over your life and surrender to his rule, surrender to his reign you will know the healing of creation. So, we've seen two things so far. We've seen first, who is he? He is the true king. Second, what does he come to do? Establish God's reign. Our final journalistic question, how will he do it? Let me just talk about, just for a moment, how everyone expected him to do it, okay? 
There was a very high level of, of revolutionary expectation at this time. Messianic expectations were very high. There was a, a very active Jewish party called the Zealot Party, and they were waiting for the right political rebel to arise who could help them overthrow the Romans. There's a lot of messianic expectation about this king, and when he did come, there was this idea that he was going to do it like all the other great kings do it. He would ride in Jerusalem, wielding the sword, take out the Romans, establish God's reign. In fact, Alexander the Great, have you heard of him? Alexander the Great? Just 300 years prior to this, he had done this. He rode into Jerusalem on his famous black stallion in 332 B.C., and he came wielding his sword with all of his war horses and chariots, and he brought that city into submission. And so that is the context. This is what powerful kings do when they establish a new kingdom. This is what people were expecting. And so you can just imagine what the people were thinking when about a mile and a half, let's say about two kilometers out of the city, Jesus, who has been walking for three years, suddenly says, hey, y'all, you know, I don't think I'm going to walk into this great city. I'm going to ride. Do you know what they are thinking? Do you know the expectation and the frenzy that they are experiencing? They are now, they know now we're going to knock those Roman heads. Now we're going to gallop down to that city and finally take the kingdom back. They are ready. And then Jesus says, and here is my mighty steed, a baby donkey. (laughs) And you can just imagine the disciples, a baby donkey. Jesus, come on. A stallion or a steed or a Shetland pony, you know, anything. A baby donkey. No king rides a donkey, especially not a baby donkey. Please, this is so embarrassing. But he does it. He gets on the donkey and he starts riding down in Jerusalem. And then it really begins to go downhill because they come around the turn. So Mount of Olive is like a turn and it comes down and then you come around a turn And they came around the turn, and suddenly you can see the whole cityscape of Jerusalem. If some of you have been there, you know what I'm talking about. You've been up on this hill. It is a breathtaking view of that whole city. And as soon as they come around that turn, Jesus riding this donkey, they come around this turn, Jesus sees the city, and he begins to cry. And I want you to understand, the word that Luke uses there for cry is not like a little tear rolling down his face. This is like violent sobbing. Jesus is sobbing. Jesus, have you ever sobbed so hard that you cannot breathe? This is the kind of sobbing that Jesus is doing here. He can barely breathe. He can barely get the words out. And so you know the disciples are like, oh, this is so awkward. (laughs) We wanted a mighty king on a stallion. Instead, we have a crying king on a donkey. What? is going on here. Why is Jesus, I mean, if you're a reporter, you are just totally confused. Why is this king, at the moment when he is claiming his greatest authority, is he cloaking himself with such signs of visible weakness? i tell you why, because he's a different kind of king. He is a king who has not come to rule with force and violence, but with service and suffering. Andy Crouch, in his really amazing book, Strong and Weak, talks about how these two attributes, authority and vulnerability, are very rare to see in a single leader. In fact, to most of us, these two attributes seem like a contradiction. And Andy notes that when almost every human leader grows in authority, they shed vulnerability. 
that the more power someone has, the more authority they have, the more they insulate themselves from risk and from weakness, the more they run from anything that can make them vulnerable or put them at, at a risk of suffering. And yet here, here was the amazing thing about Jesus. In this moment in which he most blatantly claims his authority, at the very same time, he cloaks himself with these radical signs of vulnerability. Riding a donkey. Weeping. And he is doing this, friends, because he is showing to us that he, this king of love who weeps, I want you to be clear, weeps not for himself, but weeps for the city. Like a mother weeping for her lost son is Jesus weeping for his children. That he is driven on by love and he will use all of his authority in all of his agency, in all of his royal capacity, he will take all of it and he will wield it in the most vulnerable possible way in suffering and love. I want you to just imagine this, okay? Jesus is up on that hill. He's on this donkey. He's looking down. He's about to ride that mile drop down into the city. And Jesus at this point is the only one who knows what lies before him. He has been trying to tell his disciples and they haven't understood He's been trying to explain it to his followers, and they have been completely misunderstanding. They are still, even at this moment of finality, are still intoxicated with these delusions of messianic political power. Only Jesus at this moment understands what is about to occur. He's the only one who knows that down at the bottom of that hill does not wait for him a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. He is the only one who understands that when he gets down to that city, they will not mount him up on this glorious throne. They will mount him naked up on a cross. He is the only one who knows that what lies before him down at the bottom of that hill is betrayal and suffering and torture and death. And not only that, that at the bottom of that hill, he will willingly drink the cup of the wrath of God. He will absorb the totality of judgment for human sin. Jesus knows that literally at the bottom of that hill is damnation. And hell reserved for him. What would you do if you were on a donkey looking down a hill and knew that that was what awaited for you at the bottom? I tell you what I do. I turn that donkey around. Make that thing gallop. But I tell you what Jesus does, friends. Jesus rides that donkey into hell. Jesus rode a donkey into damnation for you. That is love, friends. Love is not... Romance. Love is not feelings of affection. Love is this. Love is moving forward at the point when you know that suffering is unavoidable and you move forward anyway. Love is costly. Love is, is taking all of your capacity and agency and wielding it vulnerably in order to see another flourish. And this is what Jesus does. He rides that donkey into damnation. And he does it for you. He does it for me. He does it for the world. He does it for those that he weeps for. And because Jesus did that, as we will see this week in this amazing drama yet again, because Jesus did that, our enemies are defeated. And I'm not talking about the Romans. I'm talking about sin and death and hell. Our enemies are defeated because Jesus wielded all of his authority in the most vulnerable way as he willingly is defeated to give us victory. So friends, what do we see on Palm Sunday? We see, first of all, that Jesus is the true king. Second, what has Jesus come to do? He has come to establish the reign, his healing reign in the world. And that, and that can begin in your life, even today. And how will he do it? He does it through suffering and love. He does it through, through 
suffering. He does it through weakness. He, he does it by losing all for himself to gain everything for us. Let me end with this quote from John Stott. John Stott says this, on Palm Sunday, Jesus does not come to us on a war horse. He will not use force to gain entry into our lives. He comes in humility and gentleness. He comes in suffering and love because he is the king, but he is the king of peace. So brothers and sisters, will you give this king entry this week? Please, will you give him entry? He is forcing your hand. He's putting a decision upon you. He's inviting you to truly let him be king of your life. And the promise is not so that he can smother you and ruin you, but to, to make you whole, to ex- so that you might experience the shalom of God in your own life. And he does it for you in suffering love. So would you receive him? Let earth receive her king. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray. Just invite you to ask God for one thing that you want from him this week. One thing that you want to know more of. One thing that you want to experience more of. Something of his grace, something of his mercy, something of his love, something of the drama of this story. What is one thing that you can ask that he might give you this week? Lord Jesus, you are the mighty king. You are the, the, the roaring lion and the meek lamb. And you have come uh, to establish your kingdom because you want us to sing like rocks. You want us to dance like the trees. You want us to be set free of fear like the donkey. You want to make us whole. You want to make this world whole. And, and yet, you're the only one who, who understood that the way to establish the mighty kingdom of God is to give up your power and to die. You were the only one who got it. And you went alone, like a mighty king riding his stallion into battle. Jesus, you rode alone into the pit of hell for us. May we see your glorious love for us freshly this week. May we, see, may we follow you on the, on the journey from, from the garden to, to the, the, the table in the upper room, to the, to, the, to the place of trial, to the place of persecution and suffering and torture, to the Golgotha, to the place of the cross, and then finally next Sunday to that empty tomb where Jesus triumphs over the grave. May we follow him and know his mighty suffering for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.